One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on episode 69, Sennacherib versus Merodach Baladon. Previously on the Fan of History, Sargon II died in battle in 705 BC, leaving the throne of the Assyrian Empire to his son Sennacherib. Well, that's pretty unprecedented, Dan. An actual king dying on the battlefield. It's an entirely new thing after thousands of years of Assyrians. But um, I would like to talk about Patreon a bit first. If you like this podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash fanohistory. And I spend my days working with podcasts. I do eight podcasts and a YouTube channel in my own company. So I am entirely, most of my income comes from Patreon. And Fano History is my oldest podcast. It's, I love history and I really want to keep working with this. But we are doing a rework of the Fano History Patreon. We're going to put up new things. We're going to, we're not going to continue past 71 BC. And we need your input now. What do you want in this show? But we'll talk more about that on the end. So stay tuned for the end of this episode and we'll tell you about the future of the Fano History podcast. But we still need patrons, so if you love us, please become a patron. And the patron is constructed in such a way that you give us money, any, any amount of money, your choice, probably one or two dollars, but you only give that money to us if we actually produce an episode. So it's a patron per episode and not per month or something. So if we do nothing, we get no money. Right. Okay. Back to Sennacherib. He's the king of the weak, of course. He's, he is the king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, which probably makes him the most powerful man in the whole world in 705 BC. His father died in battle, 
and taking control of Assyria after this untimely death of Sargon took some time, unclear how much. We talked about that last time. One thing you must know about Sennacherib is that in his heart, he is a builder, not a warrior. He was happy when Sargon was around and could take care of all the wars. But Sennacherib is still an Assyrian king. He still knows how to fight. He still has this fantastic army, but he doesn't want to do it. He just wants to stay in Nineveh and build cool stuff, which means that he finds no joy in going out to battle. He just wants to kill everyone and go back to building. <laughs> so Sennacherib will be a very bitter enemy, whereas Sargon almost enjoyed battle. And you could see these raids of Sargon. He went to the same place year after year. Sennacher will stay and destroy his enemy so that he doesn't have to go back. <laughs> and his enemy is, his number one enemy is, of course, Merodach Baladan. And that's in the title of this episode. Merodach Baladan is still in Elam when we start. He's hiding in Elam. He wants to become the king of Babylonia again. But Sennacherib is the king of Babylonia without being in Babylon, and that never really works out, does it? And so, we have to talk about Babylonia. And I have repeated this so many times, so now I figured I would ask you what the situation is like in Babylonia in What's... 705 BC. <laughs> All right, well, let's see. In Babylonia, if I remember correctly, the... Yeah, that's uh, south of Iraq today. South of Iraq. Well, the Sumerian native population is a big deal. The Assyrians considered themselves relatives, but the natives were reluctantly non-hostile towards Assyria. It's like they had this uh, sort of tension thing. Um, it's concentrated in the cities and towns, though. Yeah, these super ancient cities that are even more ancient than Nineveh. They are. They have been around forever as city-states, and now they're a nation. But the old cities are really, really old. And then we have more people in Babylonia. Yeah, we have the uh, the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, there's three major tribes concentrated in the Sealands, but the Sealands are in the south, as you can kind of, if you ever see a map, if you look at Babylonia, and then look at, look at Assyria, look at Babylonia, Sealands are in the south area, traditionally hostile to the Assyrians, and the Assyrians hate them too, so it's kind of a mutual thing, but... You have to ask yourself, what if you could turn the Chaldeans, like, turn them around on it, make them no longer hate the Assyrians? It's something to consider. Uh, if they could be proud members of the Assyrian Empire, they would be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, because it's an area that has never really... Um, you know, been free to move through for the Assyrians. Um, the Kassites. Yeah. Kassites seem to be becoming less and less important, though. Um, they ruled Babylonia for hundreds of years, but yeah. that was before we started our podcast. Yeah, that was even ancienter history. Um, still, 
rarely on the side of the Assyrians. Assyrians have made a lot of enemies. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then we have the Armenians. They're still around, still causing a lot of chaos. Um, interestingly enough, still have the best language around right now because Dan and I talked about this off mic the other day when we were going the past episode. Um, the reason so few people actually can write um, in Assyria is because it takes a lifetime of study to be able to scribe their language, which is fascinating. Yeah, the, the language itself is very complicated and the writing system is way more complicated. Whereas the Arameans language are very easy to learn. And if you had a good writing system, such as the Phoenician alphabet, right. Aramean becomes super simple. And that is key to long-term success. Yep. It says that they do not like the Assyrians, except there are a few tribes that remain loyal. It's like their main attitude is to hate the Assyrians, but they right. are so chaotic that some of them are like, oh, we are going to be different. We are going to love the Assyrians. <laughs> yeah. When you have a group of people <laughs> who are loosely associated, they're going to do their own thing. Then we have Elam. It's almost always against Assyria. Um, right now, we're just talking about it. Someone's hiding out in Elam, Merodach Paladon. Now, here's a situation. If you have an enemy like Merodach Baladon hiding in Elam, what if you could make Elam your friend? What would happen then? Yeah, in the 7th century, BC, so many things will be going on between Assyria and Elam. They will become friends, and then they will become bitter enemies and fight it out in a final showdown. But we are not going to talk about that on this podcast. Yep, that is something that you can research in your local library or on the internet. <laughs> so that's the situation roughly in, in Babylon. And um, the big Assyrian question is, it's, we have seen by now that it's not very hard to conquer Babylonia for the Assyrians. They often, almost every time, win against the Babylonians. And then a couple of years go by and Babylon revolts. So how do you really control? We have seen many kings try different approaches. Shamshi Adad, he just <laughs> ravaged Babylonia. <laughs> Tiglath Pelleser III and Sargon II, they ruled in Babylonia as Babylonian kings. So in the late 9th and the 8th century BC, Assyrian policy towards Babylonia have been determined personally by the Assyrian monarch. It's up to every Assyrian king how he wants to handle this. And a new king often meant a radical change in direction. And that happens once again, because Sennacherib is scared that being a Babylonian is offensive to Asher and is what got his father killed. So Sennacherib is pretty anti-Babylon. He did not authorize the incorporation of Babylonian royal titles into his titulary. You know, this long, long mm -hmm. <laughs> heap of words that every Assyrian king has after his name. He has removed any reference to Marduk or Babylonia. His father, Sargon, courted the Babylonian favor and basked in signs of acceptance. 
But Sennacherib just do not give a damn about Babylonian opinion. He has built his own Babylon in Nineveh, and he has no need for the original. But he still wants the tax revenue from Babylon. Who would so, and to be recognized as the king of Babylon, you have to perform the minimal ceremonial duties of a Babylonian monarch. You have to be in Babylon. You have to grasp the hand of Marduk. But Sennacherib just doesn't do any of that. And that will be a problem. We will see Sennacherib experiment, or we will not see. We will not see all of these experiments because our podcast will end in 701 BC on this topic, and we'll move to other topics. But these are the three different versions Sennacherib will try. He will rule personally from a distance. That's what he's doing now, and we both know this will never work. He will put a non-tribal vassal king on the throne. He will put a Babylonian of the native population, of the Sumerians, the city dwellers, put one of them on the throne and make him rule as a vassal. It's not going to work out either. And then he will put his own son on the throne of Babylon. Sort of do the reverse of what Sargon did. He will stay in Nineveh and he will send his crown prince to rule as the king of Babylon. Hmm, maybe that will work. No, it won't work either. <laughs> uh, there is one good sign in Babylon. Uh, Sennacherib installed a text on the splendid breccia pavement of the central processional street called Aishbur Shabu in Babylon. And this entire street has been recreated in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. So if you go to Berlin and you're into Assyrians, you have to visit the Pergamon Museum. Because during this snatch and grab time in the 19th century, when people just stole ancient monuments from uh, the Middle East, uh, the Germans did that as well. So they have plenty of Assyrian stuff in the Pergamon Museum. And they have some spectacular displays there. For example, this recreated processional street of Babylon. You can walk the processional street of Babylon. It's not to scale, but it's pretty big. Um, so regarding this vassal king, if you want, he hasn't done this yet, Sennacherib, but he has a Babylonian ready, if this is the option he chooses. So there is a guy called Bel Ibni. He is a young Babylonian nobleman, and he has been raised at the Assyrian court. He has been brainwashed with Assyrian values, and Sennacherib knows him very well. He has probably sort of been in Sennacherib's posse when he was small. So they, they played together and Sennacherib made up the rules for the games and Bel Ibni was one of his friends. Uh, Sennacherib describes Bel Ibni in the following nice phrase. He was a man who had grown up in my palace like a young dog. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> sounds pretty insulting. Yes. Um, it's very hard to know the personality of the Assyrian kings. We've talked about so many Assyrian kings, and it's almost like they tried to make themselves carbon copies of their dads and their predecessors and their ancestors. So they all look the same, they all behave the same, they write the same inscriptions. But here, Sennacherib is different. And I want to go a bit into the personality of Sennacherib for, for the first time, maybe. I, I've tried to 
get the personalities of GP3 and Sargon II and Asher Nassipal. But it's all very vague. We know that Asher Nassipal was more violent than the others, etc. But here we get something that's almost the outline of a personality. Um, first of all, he is a builder. Many Assyrian kings were builders and warriors, but Sennacherib loved to, to build stuff. And he is much more a builder than a warrior. We have depictions of him supervising laborers moving a bull colossus. So he actually depicts himself building stuff. And this is not common for Assyrian kings. Um, he displays a very clear interest in engineering techniques. He wants to be an engineer. And he also claims that he invented a new method for casting bronze monuments. And that's something we haven't seen before either. There is an intellectual trait in Sennacherib, and it will return in full force in his grandson, Ashurbanipal, the last great king of Assyria, the sage king of Assyria. But Sennacherib still cannot read and write because language is so complicated. And we also know that Sennacherib never stops thinking about Sargon's death. But here is a cute fact about Sennacherib. He's not only a builder, but he's also a lover. The only thing we know about other Assyrian kings before him is that they had tons of wives, they had a harem, they um, yeah, had a lot of kids, but they sort of never expressed anything about their women. But Sennacherib expresses his love. He has many wives, of course, too. But he expresses his love for one of his wives. He actually likes one of his wives. That's weird, right? It's, it's crazy talk. Will you read his beautiful oh, love yes. poem? I would love to. And for Tashmetu Sharat, the palace woman, my beloved wife, whose features the mistress of the gods has made perfect above all other women. I had a palace of loveliness, delight, and joy built. So even in his love poem, he talks about building stuff. <laughs> so he loves building more than he loves Tashmetu Sharat. We also know the name of another wife, Nakia. And Nakia will become important in the 7th century BC. Uh, we know the name of the crown prince, the guy who will eventually go to Babylon to rule as the Babylonian king. His name is Ashur Nadin Shumi. So like Sargon, like Tiglath Pelister III, Sennacherib makes clear as soon as he's secure on the throne, he makes clear that this is my crown prince. We don't know if Ashur Nadin Shumi is the oldest of his sons. He, he probably is. Um, we don't have a picture of Ashur Nadin Shumin at all. There, there are no depictions of him. And uh, we know that's a pretty bad sign. If the Assyrians didn't leave depictions of someone, uh, it's going to end badly. Uh, we know of two other sons of Sennacherib. We know of Arda Mulisi and Esarhaddon. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's 704 BC. We need to talk about sports. Oh, it's time for an Olympic update. <laughs> no, it's a very short update because wow. the 19th Olympiad is in 704 BC. And a guy called Minus of Megara 
he wins the stadium race. But I haven't found any record of the other events. We know that there are right. uh, some other events at the Olympics, but uh, we don't know who won them. Hmm. In 704 BC as well, we get a pretty big invention. The Assyrians invented a lot of stuff that we have attributed to the Persians and the Romans, like the aqueducts and things like that. We talked about inventions all the time. The Assyrians are inventor. But in 704 BC, they invent the lock and key. And I was thinking about that yesterday when I sort of, wow, this is the main security system of my house. Right. And it's 2,700 years old. <laughs> So this is debated, of course, because we know about locks and keys from ancient Mesopotamia, way more ancient than this. We know about locks and keys in Egypt around 4000 BC, but the first concept of a lock and key is very different from what we have today, of course. So the first locks and keys were simple wooden devices, and then you had a key shaped pretty much like a toothbrush. And it was very delicate. So you had like a wooden box that you could open with this key. But it was so delicate that you could almost always just crush whatever was locked. And <laughs> then get, get past off. the security. Right. And the key was very bulky and heavy and hard to use. So they, they were not used for much. You could like note if somebody broke into your box. So nobody could take things from your box without you noticing it. But that was about the use you had of it. But then we find these ancient locks. And the oldest of the ancient Assyrian locks uh, is found in the ruins of Sargon II's palace in Khorsabad. Because Khorsabad was abandoned. So a lot of stuff is quite well preserved in Khorsabad. And that lock mechanism was dated to 704 BC, which seems weird because Khorsabad was already abandoned in 704 BC. And there's a lot of other inventions made in 700 BC, around 700 BC, but that's outside the scope of our podcast. So now we're getting to the main meat of this episode because in 703 BC, the Babylonians are fed up. They've had enough with this remote Assyrian king. Uh, yeah, he is not TB3, he is not Sargon II, he doesn't want to be a Babylonian. And uh, the native Cimmerian population of Babylon, they don't like Sennacherib now. He has shown that he doesn't like them, so they will not like him. And then we have this ambitious uh, man, a provincial official from a prominent scribal family, <laughs> leads the revolt. It's so hard to read and write that scribes became prominent because... Wow, you can read and write. That's super cool. <laughs> and this family is a long line of scribes. So the revolt comes from the native Sumerian population itself and not from the Chaldeans, which is a change of pace. That's, we have seen several revolts by the Sumerian population, but not for a while now. So this guy takes the king name of Marduk Sakirshumi II. And that's pretentious, because Mardur Sakishumi I, he was the great friend of Shalmaneser III in the 9th century BC, who ruled from 855 to 819 BC. And we talked about Mardur Sakishumi quite a bit. He was a brilliant strategist. He even had the help of Shalmaneser III. So I don't know why he takes this name. 
uh, because Madhur Sakashumi the first had great relations with Assyria, but um, this guy, uh, maybe he wants to show that he he wants to get back to the 9th century BC when Assyria and Babylonia were friends. So he doesn't want the royal army to come down, but he's stealing the kingship from Sennacherib. So what does he expect? <laughs> but he he um, remains the king of Babylon for only one month. Because when this happens, when he claims the kingship of Babylonia, Merodach Baladan pays attention. He's in Elam. He's like, what's happening in Babylon? Oh, there's a revolt. That's awesome. Because Merodach Baladan knows that almost everyone in Babylonia loves him. Right. So he just goes back to Babylonia and asks his old friends, like, hey, uh, you want me to be the king? This guy obviously <laughs> can't handle it. And he just uh, usurps Marduk Sakishumi II, and we don't really know what happens to him. And with minimal effort, Merodach Balan is once again the king of Babylon. So Marduk Sakishumi II did the groundwork, and Merodach Balan just came back and took over. And it surprises me that Marduk Sakishumi didn't see this coming. Right. Because <laughs> he has probably met Merodach Balan. He would know that there's no way to keep that guy out of Babylon except a big Assyrian army. So Merodach Baladan is back, and this time it will end differently. He is determined that this time the Assyrian army will not show up, and he will have to run away, which he's very good at. This time he has to master all the allies, and he's a master diplomat, so he talks to everybody. He talks to the Cimmerian native population. He's like, okay, I throw out your guy, but you know me, I've been a good king. I will take care of your interest. I'm not just a tribal guy. I am the king of Babylon, and I will respect you. And they are like, okay, we are with you. Of course, the Chaldeans are ex excited. Not only his own tribe, but the other tribes are like, yes, finally, he's back. Let's do this. Even the Arameans are like, well, Merodach Baladan was always nice to us, so let's stay with him. The Elamite king is really happy that he's not in Elam anymore. <laughs> uh, so he promises help as well. And this time, Shutur Nahunta, the king of Elam, is not giving false promises to uh, Merodach Baladan. He is going to help out. The Arabs in the desert to the southwest, they want to help out too. So Yatye, the queen of the Arabs, sends her brother, Baskano, with an army of Arabs who are there just to fight the Assyrians for Merodach Baladan. So Merodach Baladan's diplomacy, not to be scoffed at, he's a great diplomat. And he can finally parade a full Elamite army arrives and signs up for Merodach Baladan. So Shutur Nahunt of Elam sends 80,000 archers and wow. 13 Elamite generals. And we have seen in 720 BC, the Elamites actually won a battle against the Assyrians. So this is the most dangerous army on Merodach Baladan's side, but he's not done yet. He knows how tough the Assyrians are. He needs even more help. So he sends an embassy to Judah. Hezekiah of Judah has managed to hold on to the kingship in Judah. But he's in danger from the Assyrians, and he knows that. And he listens to the sweet words of Merodach Baladan. And this 
I mentioned in 712 BC that this may be happened in 712 BC, but I'm going with 703 BC for this one. So Hezekiah raises the flag of rebellion. He is no longer a vassal. Judah is free. And Merodach Balanon is like, yeah, that's, that's the right thing to do. <laughs> When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Zekaya, I will protect you. Together we will destroy Sennacherib. And... Somehow, even the even Shebitku, the pharaoh of Egypt, is moving armies to the north. He brings up an army from Nubia of Nubians, then, and he might might have done this on request from the petty princes of Palestine, including Hezekiah. And he brings his brothers along to Lower Egypt, notably Taharka, who will later become the pharaoh. It's very unclear when this troop movement happens in Egypt, but it's, I'm tempted to see it as another machination of Merodach Baladan. The Merodach Baladan is now better prepared than ever. This time he will fight the Assyrians and win. That's the plan. And he splits his forces into two groups. He, intend, he knows that an Assyrian invasion is coming. It would be so strange if it didn't come. Maybe Sennacherib loves to build, but this is such a great uh, threat to Assyrian dominance of Babylonia. So, of course, the Assyrian army will arrive. Merodach Baladan has a plan. He stayed, places one half of his troops at Babylon itself and one half at Kutha. Kutha is fairly close to Babylon, but it is the gateway to the east of Babylonia. And we've heard about Kutha twice before. Sargon II had deported people to Israel from Kutha when he went through there and fought. So a lot of people are living in Samaria that used to live in Kutha. And Shalmanes III mentioned Kutha in line 82 on the black obelisk of Assyria. So news of this, these events in Babylon reaches Sennacherib, and he probably hears that Marduk Sakachumi II has become the king. Oh no, I have to go handle that. And then suddenly, oh, he's no longer the king. 
It's Merodak Baladan again. And he's like, oh, why can't I just be allowed to be a builder? I was going to build this great gate. And now I have to go to war. And he does not only blame Merodach Baladan for this, but he blames the illoyal people of Babylon. These troublemakers in Babylon, it's everyone is to blame and everyone is going to pay. So he gathers the host of Asher, the royal Assyrian army, the best army in the world, the best trained army in the world, the army in the world with the best equipment. And he invades Babylonia in full force, straight into the forces of Merodach Baladan. And we have some details of this campaign. An advance party is sent to Kish. And the reason that happens is that uh, there is probably a holdout for Assyrian loyalists. There are cities in uh, Babylon that doesn't agree with this policy. They want to still be a part of the Near Assyrian Empire. Because every city in Babylon is like semi-independent. They have their own rulers and stuff, and they disagree with the central decision of Merodach Baladan. But the main army of Sennacherib marches against Kutha, just like Merodach Baladan predicted. But Merodach Baladan moves to destroy this advance party. Perhaps his, his intelligence is at fault here, that he thinks the push is coming to Kish. But the only thing he finds at Kish is the advance party and some Assyrian loyalists that hold out. They hide behind walls. And Merodach Baladan's army is there when Sennacherib strikes at Kutha. So Sennacherib wins a major victory at Kutha, destroying a large part of the Babylonian force. And then he descends on Kish and Merodach Baladan himself. So Merodach Baladan is like, oh, that didn't go as planned. I have to do what no one else can do as well as I can. I have to run away. <laughs> and he runs away like no other. His skill at fleeing his enemy is unparalleled. I'm quite amazed. We've seen Merodach Baladan just disappear before. And nobody finds him. He does that again. He flees to his homeland. He flees to the Bichakin marches in the sea land. And this is totally unplanned. This was exactly what he was not supposed to do. This was exactly what was not supposed to happen. So his wife and his treasury is still in Babylon and not in the sea land. Because this time everything was going to be different. So now Sennacherib and the royal Assyrian army moves on Babylon. And um, when it comes to Babylon, the forces in Babylon, there is an impressive army in Babylon. No, half the forces of Merodach Baladan were in Babylon, but uh, they see Merodach Baladan flee, and they see Sennacherib, and Sennacherib is mad, and he's marching straight on Babylon. The Assyrians are best at siege warfare in the world, so they are like, uh-oh. Uh, we don't really know what happens, but there is not much of a fight. Maybe they yield. But uh, before you can say anything, Sennacherib is inside the walls of Babylon. And he captures Merodach Balanan's wife. He captures a lot of Merodach Balanan's female family members. He captures the royal treasury of Merodach Balanan and many courtiers. But he plunders only the palace. Somewhere in the back of Sennacherib's mind is the voice of Sargon telling him that 
please do not ravage Babylon. <laughs> and he doesn't. He tells his soldiers that no, no rape, no plunder. We just plunder the palace. And then Sennacherib is in full control of Babylon except for the sea land. And that was way easier than anyone expected. So Sennacherib had tried to be the long-distance king, and this is what happens if you try to be the long-distance king, and he kind of knew that. He just didn't have time to care about it. So now we have to use plan number two for Babylon. So he crowns, not himself as the king of Babylon, but this Bel-Ibni character. So he puts Bel-Ibni on the throne of Babylon. He is a Babylonian. And... um, he is supposed to be a super loyal vassal to Sennacherib. Sennacherib knows this guy and he's like, you will obey my every command or I will come down and kill you and everyone you ever known. And Bel-Ibni is like, yes, yes, of course I will. <laughs> and he will. He is, uh, he's loyal. He is brainwashed. Uh, he's a friend. For, for some reason, he is completely loyal to, to Sennacherib. So that means in this year, 73 BC, Babylon had four kings. Sennacherib was the king, Marduk Sakishumi II was the king, Merdak Baladan for the third time or something like that was the king, and Belibni is now the king of Babylon. So uh, order restored to Babylon except for the sea land. So Sennacherib just makes his Sargon impression and continues the campaign into the Sealand. But the Sealand is the home turf of the Chaldeans and the Chaldeans will try to defend it. Merdach Baladan is still in the Sealand. It's been 30 years of this. Merdach Baladan has been a factor in Babylonian politics for 30 years. And he's not going to end here. The Royal Assyrian army marches into the Sealand, and the defense of the Chaldeans just falls apart. Sennacherib must be quite a warrior, or maybe as the army of Sargon II is so well trained that they have no problems here. They ravage the tribal areas, they despoil most major towns and many, many villages. They beat up the Bitakuri, the Bitcha'ili, the Bitamukani and the Bityakinda, Murdoch Baladan's tribe. Uh, a lot of people are taken away as prisoners and moved to other parts of the Neo-Syrian army as per usual routine. Uh, a lot of Arameans were also deported to other parts of the empire. And thus ends the year 73 BC with Sennacherib still on campaign. Because thanks to Tiglath-Pelesi III, this is a professional army. They don't need to go back if they don't have to. So Sennacherib begins 702 BC by attacking the Kassites. Because they also signed up for Merodach Baladan. <laughs> they are not that important. But now they receive their part of the beating. There's a short expedition into the Iranian mountains against the Kassites and against the Yasubigali tribes. Nabu Belshumati of Kararati, he pays tribute wisely when Sennacherib shows up. Uh, but Ispabara of Ilippi, uh, we talked about him quite a bit. He was helped. There, there was a uh, death. The king of Ilippi died 
and he had two sons, and one of them signed up with Elam, one of them signed up with Sargon, and Ispabara is the guy who signed up with Sargon. He was put on the throne of Ilipid by Sargon, and now he refuses to yield to Sennacherib. And that's not a good idea. I was about to say, that's, that seems very bad for your health. Um, Sennacherib takes a place called the Bit Kilamsak. He captures it and makes it into garrison city of the Assyrians. He completely defeats the Kassites and the Yasubigali. And they, uh, and he brings in people from other frontiers, uh, probably from Tabal. We still don't have much details about what's going on in Tabal, the place where Sargon died, but it's probably safe to assume that Sennacherib has been punishing the people of Tabal. So some settlers are brought in for this new city. And then Sennacherib is like, well, Ispabara of Ilipi, are you really sure you're not playing the tribute? And Ispabara says, ah, I am the king of Ilipi, I have no equals. <laughs> I want to hold my land. Okay, says Sennacherib, I wanted to go back building, I would have accepted vassalage, but you are being a nuisance, sir. So he attacks Ilipi. And uh, utterly successful, Ispabara flees in the face of Sennacherib's aggression. Sisirtu Kumaklum and the province of Bitbaru are captured and added to this Assyrian province of Karkar that uh, Sargon set up in the area. And the city of Elensa is made the capital of Karkar. And he renames Elensa to Kar Sennacherib, that is Fortress Sennacherib. And uh, the idea with Elensa and this province of Kakardan is that they will uphold order for the Assyrian Empire in the foothills of the mountains so that we don't get any revolts from this side. And the governor of Kakar is put in charge of every new province here, so that becomes a powerful position in Assyria. And then Sennacherib goes back to Assyria. But during this whole successful campaign of 703-702 BC, he just fails to find Merodach Baladan. So where is Merodach Baladan? But Sennacherib returns to Babylonia and Bel Ibni writes him all the time telling about how, how the development is in Babylonia. And it's pretty clear quite fast that Bel Ibni isn't Sennacherib. He has problems controlling this. Everybody thinks he's an Assyrian, despite the fact that he's a Babylonian. And his control of Babylonia is weak. The royal Assyrian army is gone. He only has these garrisons. And um, Merodach Baladan is still in Babylonia. So there are reports about, oh, Merodach Baladan is over here. No, he's over here. He's making these people rebel. Oh, he's talking to them. And he becomes like a ghost in Babylon. And Belibni is like, oh, I want to capture him, but I have no idea where he is. And... <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we don't know either. We don't know where he is. And the Bit Yakin, they appoint a new leader to prove that they are not rebels. They don't want to be crushed again. They don't want Sennacherib to come back. So they appoint a new leader, Shusubu. And Shusubu is probably the later king of Babylonia called Mushesib Marduk. But I think this Shusubu is just uh, a marionette of Merodach Baladan. I think this is just a political move of the Bityakin, and they are still 100% loyal to Merodach Baladan. 
So let's review this kingship of Bel Ibni. It's, it's a pretty ungrateful spot to be put in, right? Like, hey guys, I'm one of you. I grew up with the Assyrians. I'm loyal to Sennacherib, but you should. I, I'm one of you. Look at me. I'm holding the hand of Marduk. Oh, I'm so <laughs> Babylonian. But uh, we have some economic texts from Babylon, and we know that the northern cities of Dilbat, Nippur, and Babylon itself, they name all their documents after Bel Ibni. They're like, uh, in the year of Bel Ibni, our king. So they, they are fairly loyal, but of course they are, because they are close to Assyria. <laughs> <laughs> and, they certainly uh, not to. Yeah, we found some damaged text exemption documents that showed that Bel Ibni at some point exercised some authority in the Chaldean territory. But this authority must have been pretty weak. Because the Chaldeans are not having any of this. They are just planning for the fourth or fifth, I've lost count, return of Merodach Baladan. Because Merodach Baladan will come back. <laughs> Official documents from 700 BC says that uh, Bel Ibni only rules northern Babylonia, while there are Assyrian governors administrating the south. But these Assyrian governors seems like a paper construct, because I don't see an Assyrian sitting in the marches <laughs> telling the Bityakin what to do. <laughs> no. And I think, in fact, the Chaldeans uh, become independent pretty quickly, just uh, two years after the war. And Sennacherib will have to come back. He will come back in 700 BC uh, for another Babylonian campaign, but that is outside the scope of our podcast. Mm -hmm. So Merodach Baladan survives our narrative. That seems he's, so unlikely. <laughs> he makes it into the 7th century BC, and he starts working on a fourth decade of being a power player <laughs> in Babylonian politics and i just love this guy he's, he's such a nuisance <laughs> like okay you may beat me in battle but you'll never capture me that's it's so amazing <laughs> i just don't even know what to say yeah, but this is the situation when uh, when we go into the year 701 bc and remember hezekiah he did raise this flag of rebellion in the west He's surrounded on all sides by Assyrian vassals and Assyrian provinces. He is talking to the other princes of Palestine. It's like, oh, I am doing the rebellion thing. Join me. And they're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and there is a vague promise of Egyptian troop movements. But maybe there are Nubian armies nearby that would help Hezekiah. But he has rebelled against the Neo-Syrian Empire. And the Neo-Syrian Empire and Sennacherib won the battles of Babylon. So the only one, the only one vassal who is not in order in the Assyrian Empire is Hezekiah of Judah. So he's standing there all by himself. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure he's getting like reassuring letters from Merodach Balaram. Oh yeah. Oh, this is just a minor setback. I will be back. But when Sennacherib goes to punish Hezekiah, he will be all alone facing the greatest army in the world in our next episode. Next episode, we're hitting 701. 
Sennacherib will go to war against Judah. Oh, yes. And now we'll talk about the future of this podcast. Yes. This podcast will continue. We will not cover the 7th century BC because we did not reach the Patreon goal. And we have been talking a lot about other subjects. And we really want your feedback. You can send us messages on Patreon. You can uh, comment on YouTube. You can send us messages on our Facebook page. But we want to know what you think. And we will give you some, some ideas of what we were talking about. Uh, first, we discussed doing another big topic because I love to dive deep into historic subjects such as we have done here for the world history between 1000 and 700 BC which now ends in the next episode and I, I named this podcast Fan of History because we should have the option to change the topic of the podcast and that is now going to happen so first we looked into big topics so we were thinking like we could do the history of Sweden. I am from Sweden. There is no history of Sweden podcast in English. Uh, maybe people would be interested in that. Uh, we were talking about doing the full history of Rome. And if we did, we would have to do it in more detail than Mike Duncan did. He did it for five years. So we'd <laughs> have to do it for 10. And I would have no problem with that. That's, that's probably where fan of history will end up at some point. So I can do the history of Rome forever. We also discussed doing the history of the Vikings. We do have the YouTube show Timeline of World History that has been going on for 13 episodes. We could cover that on the podcast as well. But whenever we thought about a big subject like that, the name fan of history is a problem uh, in a way. Because if, if you were doing 50 episodes on the history of Sweden or 500 episodes on the history of Rome, then it would be much better if the podcast was named um, the history of Sweden, for example. Right. So then we turned it around and then we thought about, okay, maybe we should make use of this name, Fan of History, and actually jump around much more. So after 701 BC, we're going to do one episode about the history of Brennan. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My, uh, I did um, genetic testing for two different sites to get a better overview of where my genetics say I am from. And I have a, I, I have a timeline already of family history and family names and whatnot. And this really ties into that overall. And I'm not going to go into specific names, but I'll talk about the migration of people that led to me being born. So that's going to be episode 71. We are also going to take a summer break after this episode. So uh, the destruction of Sennacherib 701 BC episode 70 will arrive in your podcast feed before October. And we want you to take this time to comment to us, to send us feedback, what you want this podcast to be. Because we love history and we love to podcast. We used to do so many things on the Magic YouTube channel together, and now we don't. So this, right, is, exactly. our, yeah, this is our main way of uh, <laughs> spending time together. So, so we, yeah, yeah, you're helping friends stay connected. 
<laughs> yes. And please, if you if you like this, become a patron at patreon.com slash fan of history. Uh, we have removed the earlier goals and we are going to rework the rewards, but one dollar an episode, we would love that, and that would ensure that you get episodes in the future. Uh, the the big goal on Patreon right now is two hundred dollars, because then we will go weekly with the podcast. But then our new idea here is to cover, and we're going to do that after episode seventy one, or starting with episode seventy one, we're going to cover short subject, quick hits. We have a couple of ideas, so we are going to jump around in history and like talk about interesting things. And we want your input. And if you are a patron at patreon.com slash history, you can send in a suggestion for a quick hit topic. We want to do maximum 30 minutes of a topic, and we could do several topics in an episode. So please hit that message button on Patreon and tell us what you want to hear about. And if we can find something about it, we will talk about it. And we are going to spend the summer finding a lot of small topics that we can talk about. You you get a taste of this on the Fan of History YouTube channel where we have done together with interesting shit <laughs> uh, some short videos about random topics. So, yeah, we, we could do anything short. And we, we want to do this together with you. We really want your feedback. So so please communicate with us. Right. If there's uh, something that you wanted to, to know more about, like if you have a, an interest in something, just let us know. Well, we can find something about it. And you, you probably cannot avoid the Stockholm bloodbath. <laughs> <laughs> I've done videos on it already, so uh, I might talk about that. Um, so let us know what you want to hear. Did I forget anything, Brennan? Um, no, that pretty much covers it. Uh, just the new direction, and uh, I think it. I, I am certain you will still find it interesting. I know that this timeline had a narrative to go with it, but history is so, is full of so many amazing things that uh, will. There's endless amount of content available, and I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, and I think that we we have proven now after 69 episodes that this did not really work. I was super interested in the Assyrians and stuff, but so somewhere we, we failed to find the audience and the patrons. So uh, we have to do rework and try to improve what we do. And that is what we are trying to do when we need your help to do it. So please tell us what you want to see from this podcast. Yep, we look forward to hearing from you. So don't forget YouTube. Just find us, Fan of History on YouTube. Subscribe, like, and share. Give us a review, any kind of review, then that's a good place. That's another good place to tell us what you would like to hear more about. Um, Facebook.com slash Fan of History. And like Dan mentioned earlier, Patreon.com slash Fan of History to help us continue our work. Um, if you want to follow Dan on Twitter, it's at Dan Horning. If you want to follow me, I'm at Cerulean Says Hi. Um, fan of history at gmail.com if you want to email us. Is that working? Is it? I thought it was. I don't know. Who, who is getting those emails? <laughs> I thought you were. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm not sure. So let's okay, yeah. uh, let's do the messaging through Patreon yeah, and uh, don't Facebook. Don't do the email. <laughs> <laughs> don't send any emails. Yeah. 
Emails, emails, old school. You don't want to do that. Let's be new. Uh, we're old professionals yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We do appreciate you listening. So, so next time, the destruction of Sennacherib. Total destruction. Destruction. <laughs> uh, for this week, I am Brennan. And I'm Dad. And this has been Fan of History. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.